no matter what. It's not based on what Abraham will do. It's an eternal, everlasting, unilateral covenant. So God promises land, seed, and blessing. Now, we're going to see the Mosaic covenant later. That is a two-way covenant, meaning you will be blessed if you obey. And then there's the Davidic covenant, which is also a unilateral covenant, God made with David, saying you will have an heir of yours will sit on the throne for eternity. And who's that? Jesus Christ. So that is also an eternal covenant. Now, God makes this promise to Abraham. He fulfills it. They go into the nation of, of Egypt. You know, they flee there, Abraham's grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They multiply till there's millions of them. And they then finally leave after being enslaved by Egypt. God sends Moses to set them free. Moses takes them out of Egypt to the promised land. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. Now, at the beginning of that wandering, God gives the Mosaic Covenant or the law. He, ever heard of the Ten Commandments? He gives them the Ten Commandments. By the way, there were 611 other commandments also. So a total of 613 commandments held in the Mosaic Law. And the idea was blessing based on obedience to the law. Now, this was a great blessing for the nation to be God's people, that they had this list of rules that helped them connect with God, but it also gave them the best way to live. So those that lived that life, it worked out best for them. There were even things in there about hygiene that the people of that time didn't really understand. And now with our science, we can actually read it and go, oh, we kind of get why God said that. Uh, don't eat pork, because in that day and age, it probably would make you sick. And other things. But so he made this list of rules. But here's what else he did. This is really cool. When he called the Israelites out, he gave Moses the instruction and he gave him people, go grab these people skilled. I want you to make something. Make the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark looks, well, if you've seen Indiana Jones, the first one, remember they, that's the Ark of the Covenant. It actually looks a lot like that if you read the, the description. And this Ark uh, contained the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his finger on the stone, but then Moses broke them, and then he had to chisel the next one himself. Anyway, those were put into the Ark. Moses' brother Aaron, at one point, uh, a miracle is done. He's holding his staff, and it buds. That is in the ark. And the ark had what was called the mercy seat on top, and this was where God would meet with his people. It was the direct presence of God. And so they made this ark, and then they made the tabernacle, which was a tent. And the ark would be in the tent, and whenever the Israelites would pick up and travel, you know, they would put poles into the ark, and they would carry it, and they would move the tent. Well, God was present with his people over that tent. In the day, there would be a cloud just sitting over the tent. At night, the cloud would turn into fire. I want to see dusk. Like, how did it switch from cloud to fire? But how cool is that? That it was God's way of telling them, I am with you. You know, here is a nation. You belong to me. I am your God. You are my people, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you. This was the nation of Israel. Big deal. Great blessing. So God was present with his people. But here's the thing that we need to understand before we move on is that under the Old Covenant, Gentiles were separated from God and His promises. Now let's define that. Who's a Gentile? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're not a Jew. You're Gentiles. That's the basic definition of a Gentile is a non-Jew. And so the Gentiles under the Old Covenant were separated from God. They were not included in these promises of blessing, of land, 
They were not included in these promises of a king to reign over them forever in, in perfect holiness. We were separated from these promises. Now, here's the thing that happened with Israel. Israel was called to be a blessing, and they had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the direct presence of God, which was awesome. Fast forward again, and they have their first godly king, King David. Godly man, man after God's own heart, loved the Lord, uh, and he really united the kingdom uh, and set it going God's direction. And David wanted to build a temple for God. God said, no, you can't build a temple for me because you're a man of bloodshed, but your son will. David said, fine. So he went and he gathered up a bunch of timber and, all the, and he kind of basically put all the building supplies in a pile and then told Solomon, his son, when you become king, you're going to build that temple. Solomon did. He built the temple. And you read about the temple in the Old Testament. It was amazing. You know, this temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. People would travel just to see this thing. So he built this temple. And when it was finished, they took the Ark of the Covenant, which was in a tent. And by the way, God never asked for a condo. He was fine with the tent. But they built it for him, and he was honored. They took the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into the temple, and when they did, a cloud filled the temple, representing God's holy presence. The, the priests that were in the temple and were going about their work, they couldn't even do their work because they couldn't see because the cloud was there. The whole point of that was this is where God was going to be present. This is where the Jews were going to worship. Now, the thing that happened over time was that the Jews just kind of gathered around there. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. But instead of really going, scattering, they gathered and they stayed around the temple. And something else happened. They, they developed, in general, this attitude of pride and racism. Now, that temple that Solomon built was destroyed. Then another one was built. It was destroyed. Then another one was built. And that one is the one that was existing during this day and age. And during this day, during Paul's day and Jesus' day, the temple was set up a little bit different. So in the temple, you could go in, and the, the very center was the Holy of Holies, God's presence, only one priest could go in. Right outside of that was the area where the priest could be. Right outside of that was the way, where the Jewish men could be. Outside of that was where the Jewish women could be. And then there was a wall and a little bit of a cliff, and down there what was called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where we could go. We could go to that place where all the Jews could look down on us. That was how it was set up. And so they developed this, this superior uh, and racist attitude. Now, why do we look at all that? Because this is what Paul is going to reference in Ephesians, this separation of Jew and Gentile. And the question, these Ephesian Christians, they're all Gentiles for the most part. They were in a, a pagan city, in a pagan land in Asia. They, they grew up worshiping many gods, all false gods. The Jews were blessed that they had the one true God. And, and so they, as Gentiles, are then asking, are we in? You know, what do we do? You would think that things would change after the church began. In fact, I want to read you Acts 1.8. After Jesus died, rose from the dead, he appeared to many for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom. And in Acts 1.8, right before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Jews, and in all Judea, primarily Jews, and Samaria, dogs, and to the ends of the earth. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. They were called to go. But if you read the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jerusalem. Chapter 2, Jerusalem. Chapter 3, Jerusalem. Chapter 4, Jerusalem. 
they just kind of stayed there until Stephen was stoned to death. And then the Jewish Christians scattered around the world and they changed the world. They turned it upside down. But they still struggled with this idea of racism, that they were superior, that, that if they came in touch with a Gentile, they would be dirtied. You know, if they went into a Gentile's house when they left, they would rub the dust off their feet because they would be dirtied by them. They would be unclean. Peter, you probably know who Peter is, one of Jesus' close three. Peter, in Acts chapter 11, is, is on the top of a roof, and he sees this vision. Jesus gives him this vision. And in the vision, this sheet comes down out of heaven containing a whole bunch of animals. And Jesus speaks to, to Peter. He says, kill and eat. Well, in the sheet are unclean animals, things like pigs, that Jews didn't eat pigs. He says, kill and eat. Peter goes, whoa, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good Jew. I, I won't eat what's unclean. And so God you know, raises it and brings it back down again. He says, I'm telling you, kill and eat. Oh, I, don't, I won't eat what's unclean. And God, Jesus to, says, what I have made clean, don't you dare say is unclean. The point wasn't the food, although all of that law is done now. You know, that has done away with under the new covenant, done away with Jesus' death and resurrection. After this, he sees this vision. Uh, there's a knock on the door. And someone comes and says, Peter, we want you to go share the gospel with these Gentiles in their house. And so Peter starts to get it. Okay, Jesus, what you say is clean, don't I dare say is unclean. He goes to this Gentile's house, shares the gospel, the whole household is saved. The Jewish Christians after that grab Peter, pull him aside and go, what are you thinking? What are you doing going into these unclean houses and sharing? What are you doing? And so at the beginning of the early church, there was still this divide between Jew and Gentile that they struggled with. The Jews, a lot of them said, well, these Gentiles have to become Jews, meaning they need to be circumcised. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So imagine being a 50-year-old man that's saved. Oh, you have to be circumcised now. You'll read over and over uh, basically them saying you don't have to do that that you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. Now, with all that context, let's look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Doesn't this look familiar to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul kind of listed, this is what you were, helpless and hopeless? He's saying the same thing here. You as Gentiles were separated from God. You were without hope, without God in the world. Before Christ, this is in your notes, Gentiles had no hope. And that's still the case. Before Christ, there is no hope. There is no other way to be right with God. There is no way to salvation other than Jesus Christ. There is no hope. And so before Christ, they were helpless and hopeless. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, I want to clarify something real quick, because the church, since the beginning, has had, at times, anti-Semitic sentiments. You know, oh, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. Well, what is the benefit, you read the book of Hebrews, of being a Jew? Great indeed. Great indeed. They had the prophets. They had the scriptures. They had the law. They were blessed by God. So it was a great privilege to be a Jew, to be an Israelite. They were God's chosen people. 
And here you see, though, they had these promises, and the Gentiles were strangers to those promises. But, verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's their question. Where are we in this? You were far. The Jews were near. Why were the Jews near? The Jews weren't saved by being Jews, by the way. The Jews weren't just going to heaven because they were Jews. They were also saved by faith in God. But they were near. I mean, they had the prophets. They had the scriptures. They had the law. Access to God was much easier with them uh, during that temple time. They had the direct presence of God among their midst. The Gentiles were far off. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus made it possible for Gentiles to gain access to God. Made it possible to gain access to God. Now, here's the real context. As you go through, Gentiles are now saved, but is there Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian? You know, are we two different groups? Look at verse 14. For he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made us both one. Paul is a Jew. We're going to see some of this coming up in the next few weeks. You know, Paul was a Jew called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So when he says he has made us both, meaning us Jews, Paul, him, and the other Jews, and you Gentiles, he has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh by his death on the cross the dividing wall of hostility. So that wall I was referring to that separated where the Jews could go in the temple and where the, the court of the Gentiles, right here he's saying Jesus broke down that wall. You know, in that day, you could, a Gentile, if you went deeper into the temple, you could be killed for it. In fact, they came after Paul at one point because Paul had a Gentile with him in Jerusalem. And they thought, he, he has this Gentile here in Jerusalem. He must have brought him into the temple. we got to go get him. So this was a big deal. He has broken down this wall of hostility, basically saying there is now no separation. Jew and Gentile all have access to God. And here's what's even cooler that this doesn't mention at this point. When Jesus died on the cross, so we described the temple there was that holy of holies that only one priest could go in once a year. There was a curtain that hung there. It was like this thick, crazy curtain hanging, separating it, very heavy. When Jesus died, when he said, it is finished, and he breathed his last, darkness covered the land, the earth shook, and that curtain was torn in two right down the middle. Can you imagine being one of the priests standing there? You, you feel the shake, it gets dark, and then this curtain that could never tear, just tears right down. The point was this, we don't need the temple anymore. The point was now we, through Jesus, have direct access to God. We don't need priests. We don't need pastors. There is no holy people that we need to go through. We get access to God and everybody equally. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's kind of beaten this drum. We, no hostility between Jew and Gentile. You're now one body in Christ because of what Jesus did through his blood. 
Verse 17, and came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Under the new covenant, Jesus creates one united group of his people. Now, real quick, back to those covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, still in effect today. The Davidic covenant, still in effect today. The Mosaic covenant is done and over with. That's what he's saying. Those law of commandments, that was a, a, a bilateral covenant, you know, blessing based on obedience. Now, under the new covenant, and you're going to talk about this in your groups this week, so if you're not in a group, get in one. That's kind of the there's lecture and lab. You, know, you get to then wrestle with Scripture. The new covenant, guess what? It's a unilateral covenant. Through Jesus' blood, God promises you and me blessing not based on anything you've done. That's the first 10 verses in Ephesians 2. That's last week. If you missed it, listen to the podcast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And under this new covenant, Jesus creates one united group of his people. Can we make a, a quick revel, relevant application? There's no racism in the church. There's no sexism in the church. In Galatians 3, Paul says it this way. This is on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now leave that up. His first point that you see there and here is that there's no room for division in the church. James, Jesus' half-brother, writes in his a lot about the division between rich and poor. As the body, this is what's so cool about the church. This is a miracle. All of us, rich, poor, men, women, black, white, Filipino, Italian, I mean, you go through the list. We're united into one. And nobody has special privilege with God above the other. We are all equal heirs under God. You know, the sad part is you look at the history of the church. Racism has been defended by Scripture, using Scripture incorrectly. Segregation, I mean, go through the list of all that. The church is one group united. There's no room for any of that. And we're going to see more of this next week. The miracle is how God unites us. I mean, just look around. Would you hang out with these people? <laughs> it, really? God unites us. I, as a Christian American, American Christian, I have more in common with an African Christian than I do with an American unbeliever. That's just the way it is. And if you've, been, you've experienced this, you, there's just an affinity with believers, but not based on fleshly affinity, based on the spirit. That's why he talked about us being united in one spirit. So no unique status is granted to anyone based on race, gender, or nationality. But, I'll let you write that down. I want you to pop up the Galatians passage one more time. Because here's something else that's unique. Not only are we united, but it says there, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we, as Gentiles, we now get to be brought in to these promises made. The Abrahamic covenant, I told you, it's, it's still legit. It's still enforced. We get the blessings of that. 
We get the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We will be with God forever. We will be under Jesus' reign and rule forever. We will be blessed, not based on anything we've done. We get to be part of that. That's what he's talking about. You see that also in these passages. In uh, verse 19, it says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. So we are brought into these, these promises that God makes. One group. This is the church. There is no Jewish church. There is no Gentile church. There is no African-American church and white. I mean, go through the list. The church. But there's something else significant about the church. Now, remember the temple? I mean, something that the Jews had, which was very significant, God's presence. Well, now the temple's gone. It was destroyed in AD 70. It wasn't needed anymore. Look back at verse 22. Verse 21, Jesus, you saw in verse 20, that is the cornerstone of this new building, this church, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see why we talked about the tabernacle and the temple, God's presence among his people. Now God is still present among his people, the church. How? In the new temple. What's the temple? You and me. Now, we talk about this in the church that, you know, my body is the temple of the Lord. You know, I've heard somebody say that you can't get a tattoo because your body is the temple of the Lord. And we turn to the passage and that's a misuse of scripture. But your body is the temple of the Lord, meaning the Holy Spirit dwells in you. But in this context, we as the church are the temple. We as a community, a gathering, an assembly, we are the temple. God is present with us, just as present as he was with Israel with the fire and the cloud. God is present among us. That's a big deal. Why is that such a big deal? Look at every other organization on earth. I mean, there's all kinds of organizations, some good ones, some horrible ones, but none of them have the privilege of having God's presence with them. The church is unique. And we as believers, we don't really have the option of saying, I don't want to be part of a church. Because we're called to be part of the community. And it's not just something we do on Sunday. I hope. It's, it's not just a cool organization that teaches us about God. It's the press. I mean, this is kind of mystical, isn't it? It should be. It should be mystical. It should be exciting. We are the presence of God. God is here among us. The church is the people of God who have the honor of enjoying His presence and making him known to the world. Part of that Abrahamic covenant, remember, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing. Now, because of Jesus, we get to be a blessing to the rest of the world. God is not present anywhere else but in his church and in his people. We say it this way around here at times. We're plan A. There is no plan B. We're plan A. For some reason, God has chosen you and me and all the other believers. He's going to make a difference in this world. He's going to save souls. He's going to build his church. He's going to do it through broken, weird people. You and me, we are plan A, and there is no plan B. What an honor. What a privilege. That doesn't lead us to pride, but yet the church often does the same thing Israel did at times. We just gather. Oh, look at what we have. Isn't it great? Rather than scattering 
rather than going and doing what God has called us to do, be a blessing to the nations. You know, the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. We are plan A and there is no plan B. This is really exciting stuff. So the question I have is, if we together are representing God to those around us, how are we doing? How are we doing? Now, there's a, there's a tension here. We have to be a little bit careful because it's not in our own effort that we go be godly. It's not in our own effort that we make God known. It's by us enjoying God, abiding in Him, that He makes Himself known in and through us, which really frees us up as the church. We're free to follow. We're free to abide in Him and do what He would have us do. And then He's going to do great things. And He's doing great things. It's exciting to see Him at work. But we as the church are blessed. Now, here's the thing about being a pastor and preaching. It's really great when you <laughs> preach passages that are full of commands. Let's say, go do this and go do that. In Ephesians, the first three chapters, there's no commands. There's none. Now, there's a lot in the next chapter, so I can't wait to get to those. But the first three chapters, he's really all about just know these things. And this is kind of a big deal. What are we supposed to know? The significance of the church, the unity of the church, and who God is in and among his church. That's what we know. That's what we know. And hopefully, it doesn't just elevate our view of God. Hopefully, it elevates our view of one another and of people different than us. And it elevates the significance of us as a group. Not pride, you know, not pride, humility, but this is a big deal. The church is a big deal, and we are blessed to be part of it. We're going to move into our time of worship. And as we worship, we're going to sing, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is commanded in Scripture. Yeah, we're, we're really given two sacraments, you could say, in Scripture. The first is baptism, that when you're saved, you're then baptized to tell everybody you believe in Jesus and to be brought into the community of believers. And, then the, and that's done one time. You don't get baptized over and over, one time. And then there's communion or the Lord's Supper. And this, we're not told how often to do it, but we're told as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of Jesus. And so this is one of those things we do, and this is a unique time where we get to meet with God because we are the temple. God is here among us. And taking the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' death on the cross. We never move past the cross. We remember His blood, and we look forward to Him coming back. I mean, who's struggling in this life? I guess we don't need a show of hands, but <laughs> we're str it's not forever. Jesus is coming back. He's going to reconcile. And so part of the Lord's Supper is looking forward to that time. And it gives us hope and confidence because it's going to happen. But here's something else about the Lord's Supper. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is writing to a church that's not doing things all that well. Church is still struggling with racism. Church is still struggling with divisions between rich and poor. And he writes this. He's going to give them instructions on the Lord's Supper, but he begins it this way. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Meaning, don't do religion. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. They were divided. They had divisions. They, they had, you know, 
whatever it was, and you see others, she is, this woman's mad at this woman, and they're fighting in the church, and he writes and says, get over that. You know, there's the rich coming together, and they're eating all the good food, and then the poor come, and there's nothing for them. He's saying, stop it. We as the church are different. And he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord." Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here's his point. What we're doing right now is a big deal. It's for believers only. So if you're not a believer, go see somebody in the back, pray with them, become a believer, then take the Lord's Supper. Salvation is free to any who place their faith in Jesus as Lord. But before you take the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Do you have any unconfessed sin? Is there sin in your life that you know is sin and you're just letting it go? Stop. Stop. If you're not willing to, don't take the Lord's Supper this morning. Or confess it, agree with Him that's sin. Maybe go see one of our prayer people, confess it to them, and, and, and pray together. Then come take the Lord's Supper with a free heart. Maybe you need to write a prayer or a confession, roll it up, and stick it in our prayer wall over there. Or, also in context, is there disunity? You know, God is doing great things here at Common Ground. You know, we're looking at this building. Uh, people are being saved. People are being, it's a great time. Guess what? I can predict what's going to happen. The enemy is going to try and get in, in, and attack our unity. That's the best way the enemy takes down churches is by creating disunity. So are you harboring anything in your heart toward another believer, this church or another one? We're all, we're all the church. Is there something in your heart? Maybe you need to go outside and make a phone call before you take the Lord's Supper. I'm not kidding. Maybe you need to commit to reconcile with somebody. But our unity is a big deal. Let me pray and, and we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the church. God, I'll bet many of us in here can talk about the pains we've experienced from church people. Uh, and, and we apologize and we know that's going to happen again because we're still in these bodies until you come back. But thank you that you miraculously bring in sinful people, bring in broken people, and you create this one new body. It's beautiful. It's amazing. I thank you for the church. I thank you that I get to be part of the church. I thank you that all of us in here get to be part of the church that you have called, that you have given your spirit to, and you've united, and for a purpose, not just to do religious services. That would be so boring. Thank you. Thank you for having a mission for us. Thank you for choosing to work through us, not around us, and that in the process we get to enjoy your presence. I ask if there's anybody in here that needs something today, that you would give it to them. God, if anybody's hurting, if anybody needs to be saved, I pray that they would make the bold step of going to see one of our prayer warriors in the back and praying and getting some help. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. And we remember your blood, we remember your body, and we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.